Welcome to VB Injustice, the Price Benowitz podcast, where you join our hosts, Dane Phillips and Mitch Greenberg, on their journey to prove what makes our lawyers different and why our lawyers have chosen to pursue a life of fighting for justice. This episode is hosted by Dane Phillips and was originally recorded for our criminal defense podcast, Obstructing Injustice. Sit back and enjoy the show. Our first guest of all time, our esteemed guest today is David Benowitz. Uh, he is a partner at Price Benowitz LLP. It's a mid-sized firm in Washington, D.C. They have lawyers in D.C., Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, and even in South Carolina. And so with that, we're going to go back and kind of give you a little overview about who David is. He graduated from George Washington uh, Law School, where he was a member of the Law Review and Moot Court Board. He also received his LLM in trial advocacy from Temple University, and he's also board-certified criminal trial advocate from the National Board of Trial Advocacy. Uh, he began his career and received invaluable experience as a public defender in the nationally recognized public defender services in Washington, D.C., and we're definitely going to talk to him more about that and how that was a cornerstone of his career. In his spare time, <laughs> when he has very little, he's a faculty member for the Trial Advocacy Workshop at Harvard Law School, the Building Trial Skills Workshop at Georgetown University Law Center, and is a lecturer at the George uh, Washington University Law School as well. Now, he's received numerous awards and accolades, but one recognition that stands out to me is that he's been chosen seven times as Washington, D.C.'s best lawyer by the readers of the Washington City Paper and their Best Of series. Uh, welcome to the show, David. Glad to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, being our first guest, it's quite the honor, and obviously being a part of the law firm I work at, uh, certainly I'm glad that we're able to get this podcast kicked off. I think we're going to do a lot of good things, have a lot of good interviews, and hopefully not only teach a lot of people about what criminal lawyers do, what the criminal defense justice system truly is, all its flaws, all its blemishes there, you know, and, and then hopefully right. learn from each other as well. That's kind of the goal sure. is to spread the word, right, as, as to all the good that criminal defense lawyers do, despite the negative public perception that's out there about our profession, be able to show why we defend people that are accused of crimes, why we do what we do, why we get up in the morning, and ultimately why we're needed in having a safe and fair system uh, and the slippery slope that would happen if, if we didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I guess first, let's start with any good story. It starts with the origin story. What's the origin story okay. of David Benowitz? So the reason I got into this type of work, uh, I, was a, I was an undergrad in Philadelphia in the 80s, and I got interested in being a big brother in the big brother program. So I became a big brother, and my little brother I ended up staying with for... It was about 13 years um, that I was pretty involved in his life. And he was, his family and he, you know, were, were uh, a little bit on the wrong side of the line in Philadelphia when it comes to, uh, now then again, most, uh, a lot of the police that we were dealing with in Philadelphia at that time were on the wrong side of the line. So there was, a, there was, there was not, there was a, a quite a blurred line in Philadelphia in the 80s. And, but so eventually my little brother got arrested 
uh, and ends up doing some time in prison. And that his, his interaction with his public defender in Philadelphia, which I thought was a very positive interaction, uh, and the representation that he got, which I thought was, was, was very good, uh, really spurred my interest in, in, um, uh, in potentially becoming a public defender. Uh, and I then did an internship at a place called the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C. I did this in my year between college and law school. I knew I was going to law school, but that's like most, most kids, you know, from New Jersey who are either going to be a lawyer or a doctor or, or something, you know, some, all, the, all the Jewish kids are doing that. Uh, I didn't really know why I was going. But once I did this internship, within a couple of days when I walked in and did this internship, and basically the internship advertisement was, if you are aggressive and have a car, we'll let you investigate homicides. And I was yeah, like, okay, I, that show, is- Show me. up, <laughs> right. Show up and if you, and, you know, and you're, and you're interested in fighting, you know, that, that was pretty much me. So I showed up, they trained me on how to investigate homicide cases and they cut me loose. And I was like, this is, I am not leaving. Like I, I am staying in this spot for as long as I can. And I was, I was at that office for almost 10 years. Uh, I, I worked my way there through law school. And then I was, I was, I was an investigator for the, pretty much most of the year between college and law school. I worked my way through law school. And then I was a, a staff attorney uh, at the Public Defender Service for about seven years. So with that, I mean, certainly that's the cornerstone of your career, right? I mean, that's where you yes, learned absolutely. how to defend people. Yes. That office specifically has a national recognition uh, for quite some time. And even somebody, you know, that was a public defender here in South Carolina and an appellate defender, I even I had heard of that uh, public defender service in D.C. and kind of just the great work it had done. Uh, what made that office a great office? Why did they get that national recognition? Well, for, for a couple of reasons. Structurally, it's protected. So in the 70s, what happened was, well, it, it got, it, there, there was a, pre, a predecessor organization, but essentially in the 1970s, the District of Columbia's local court system got created. Before that, every type of case in the District of Columbia, because it's not a state, got, got litigated in federal court. So if you had a trespassing case or a public, you know, being uh, intoxicated in public, disorderly cases, anything up to homicide got litigated in U.S. District Court, which didn't make a lot of sense. So they created in the 70s, they created essentially the local uh, District of Columbia court system. So it has now the Superior Court for the District of Columbia, which handles just about it handles all local or non-federal cases, both civil, both civil and um, criminal. And it also, there's also a DC Court of Appeals, which is now the highest appellate court in the District of Columbia. That all got created. When the, in the, in, during that time period, the Public Defender Service as an organization was constituted and it was protected funding-wise which is a huge deal because around the country, we That's, can see- that, that is the deal around the right, country. Because around the country, for example, in New Orleans, after Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, people that I know went in and took over the public defender system, the indigent defense system in, in uh, New Orleans. And they had, everything came down to the battle over funding. There's never really been a battle over funding in the District of Columbia for the public defender service. Even when in the uh, late 90s, the federal system took over, essentially took it over funding wise. It's still protected. The budget is protected. So lawyers there are paid 
you're not going to make the most money, but you're not starving. It's fair. It it, it is fair. There might be somewhat of a discrepancy between what uh, public defenders are paid and prosecutors, but you're on a federal pay scale at this point. When I left, I was on a federal pay scale. It wasn't quite as high as some prosecutors, but it was fair in that sense. And it was enough that I could make a career out of it if I really wanted to. Um, So there are plenty of lawyers there who have stayed. Um, You can stay and use your experience to help either to help individual clients or or supervise or train other people. You know, there are people there who stayed 20 and 25 years and they can afford to. They're not starving when they're doing that. Whereas in Philadelphia, in Boston, in Louisiana, in South Carolina, you cannot afford to be a public defender as as a career unless you want to start. It it's makes it possible. It makes it incredibly difficult. I mean, that's right. just that's just the, the the bread and butter of it is exactly. other than, unless you're the director or you know the sure. the chief public defender, they they generally will get compensated somewhat comparable to the prosecution, but that's that's virtually it. Every other assistant public defender, when you add in the student loans, it makes it almost impossible. Right. So if you want to get in and fight and be a line a line attorney, which is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a supervisor. That didn't make any sense. I didn't get into this. I didn't get into it to be a supervisor. Um, I got into it to, to be there and fight. So, um, you know, I was able to, during the time that I was there, I, I you know, I wasn't, again, it wasn't, I gave up a, a, a big law firm job to do it. Um, so there, you know, it probably cost me over the lifetime of my work as a public defender, dollar wise, it probably cost me, I don't know, 600 grand to do it. But I would never trade that. One, because it's what I wanted to do. And I felt like I was making a difference. Two, because I got so much experience that I made back that money many times over, over the, over the rest of my career, because I was actually able to do something as opposed to being at a big firm where, you know, the question is, oh, have you gotten experience? Have you, have you defended a deposition? Have you gone to court? I've done, you know, I've done many, many, many jury trials. Yeah, I represented many, many people. I, you know, in the same vein, I remember maybe three years out, I saw somebody had posted, oh, I got to do my first deposition. And I was like, at that point, I'd argued at the South Carolina Supreme Court numerous times, exactly. tried a murder case. You know, it's, it's like, right. wow, you got to question exactly. somebody in a conference room. So it's invaluable right. experience. And also the training that we got at the Public Defender Service, well, you would not get that training anywhere else in the country or there may be one other place in the country. And they would also send you if we needed additional training. I went to the National Criminal Defense College in Macon. They paid for me to go for two weeks. I had a case that involved DNA. This was only a few years after the O.J. Simpson case. The Public Defender Service paid one of the experts from the O.J. Simpson case who was behind the scenes and had trained and had worked with some of the lawyers in that case. He would fly to D.C., every month or every other month and we would spend two days together and he would train me and they this was because i had a, D, a case that involved dna so i had the resources i had the training i was one of the few people there who didn't go to harvard yale or stanford law school i mean i had to fight tooth and nail to get in there because the standard of practice is very very high and also the culture there i mean i when i got there i fully expected to work 16, 18 hours a day. And I loved it. I could not believe they were actually paying me to do what I would do for free. You know, I, I just, I walked around with my friend one day and I said, 
I really, I was like, do they know that they're paying us? Like they, they, they don't know <laughs> that we would do this as a volunteer. Right. You were all in because it, oh, yeah. it, it wasn't work. No, I was there with my friends on Saturday night at midnight talking about cases. That's what I, I mean, I loved it. And I would have, I would have loved to have stayed beyond the time I was there, but my body broke down. I just couldn't, it's I grueling. couldn't sustain that. It's grueling. It's hard, it's hard it's, for someone who has never been a public defender to, uh, to understand how taxing it is if you do it right, if you're truly a zealous right. advocate over time, uh, what it does to your body, your mental health, and everything else. Exactly. I mean, I, I had a, a friend who, at the time, when I started at the Public Defender Service, uh, she was with the UN High Commission on Refugees, and she was in Rwanda right after the genocide. And we would have these conversations, and obviously the scale of what she was dealing with was unimaginable, but the emotional toll and the physical toll was not that far different um as to what i was dealing with it was kind of we you know we would we would remark to each other that you know this is not you know it was surprising how similar the the feelings were um i mean it, it like you said it's indescribable and you you it just if you're making that connection with your clients on a personal level if sure. you really go on the bat for them and you have essentially a system that's set up to steamroll everybody involved and and everything is kind of against you it's always the uphill battle. Oh, now, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I, mean, I mean, also, you know, what I think some people don't understand is that you're not only representing adults. I mean, you're representing juveniles. So I was 26, 27, representing 17, 16, 17, eight-year-olds. Now, sometimes I represented kids who were 10 years old. Um, and it was just, you know, it was not something that you can prepare for in any way. It is not possible to prepare yourself emotionally. Yeah, and it's like you said, it's in, it's impossible to prepare somebody for, because I've represented, you know, juveniles as well. And to have, you know, young children come in chained, you know, and, right. and, and especially once you become, you make that connection with the client, you know, uh, the outcome you want. And in some cases it's impossible. That just ultimately takes, takes a toll on you. Right. Well, in my first solo jury trial, you know, I was, I was doing my closing argument and it was interesting because I was, I was saying the words, I was doing the closing argument. And in the back of my head, there was a little voice saying, isn't this awesome that you get to do this? How amazing that you get to get up in front of these people and try and convince them of, you know, of, of that, that, Your position. that there's reasonable doubt and that, and, and then afterwards I started to think, well, I could, we could lose. <laughs> right. That, that it's easy for me to be excited. Like, Oh, wow. What, a, what a great honor I get to do and come up here. Oh, wait, there's a guy who, if I, if I'm not successful, he goes to prison. Right. I mean, and that was, it was interesting because that was always in the forefront of my mind. It just went to the back when I was performing, <laughs> when I was in court. It is I a think performance. It has to be in the back of my mind because otherwise it'll paralyze you. Right. It's but too you much. Have, I mean, right. I mean, you have to, I mean, you have to be so careful with your decision making and that's one of the other benefit one of the benefits one of the many benefits of being at the at the public defender service you have the time and the resources to make your help your clients make good decisions whereas at other places where you have a crushing caseload and you can't devote the time you know one you may you may be advising clients in a way that might not be the best if you knew everything about their case because you can't possibly know um two you don't have the time to forge that relationship with your client to where they're more likely to trust you so either they're listening to you without fully buying into what you're saying, even if it ultimately is the right thing to do, 
it's just very difficult. It's a very difficult set of circumstances. I was very lucky to be able to work at a place like the public defender. Right. You were in a unique circumstance where not only did they have funding, but they had resources and training, you know, many public defenders around the country have none of those things. So they get thrown in, you know, to the deep end and they don't have any resources or proper training. And, you know, it's one of those things where I've said people, you know, doctors in some respect, you know, when they're training for the first time, you know, they're, they're working on cadavers, uh, young public defenders without these resources are literally kind of putting people in life-changing circumstances while they're learning on the job. I mean, it's a, it's right. really and, a crazy circumstance. Right. And that was, I, I felt that pretty acutely when I first started and I had a supervisor um, who was helping me, you know, would mentor me on my cases. I would go to her and I would say, look, I don't feel like I have I don't have, I haven't developed the instincts to say to a client, okay, this is what you should do. I need help to develop that. I, this is my fifth case, 10th case, 20th case. How am I supposed to know what the best thing is looking at, at looking at the whole situation? I need help with that. And unfortunately you have to gain that experience working with real clients. Now there you have a lot of supervision. So that's helpful. The other, the other great thing is that our caseloads were pretty low which is the opposite of the, 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 everywhere else. the opposite of the model of everywhere <laughs> else. Whereas in the district of Columbia, the public defender service attorneys take the 20% of the most violent cases, violent crimes, sex crimes, felonies. You're not normally taking misdemeanor cases. You'll take pretty much anything as a ju- you know, for juvenile cases when you're in that rotation, but 80% of the cases go to court appointed lawyers that are not public defenders. Uh, so you're really getting, you're working with the most serious cases, you're getting the best training and you've got the resources and, and the salary to, to help you get experience and to stay in the job. So it really is a great situation. It's incredible. So I guess now let's transition. All right. So you've, you've hit your 10 years, that decade of experience is now put in place. Now you're going to transition into private practice. And I guess, you know, we can kind of go all the way up into the point where you've reconnected with your friend, your former classmate, Seth Price, you're going to hang a shingle. You're going to start a firm, you know, co-found uh, Price Benowitz. Could you talk about that transition? Sure. I, you know, when I stopped practicing, uh, I needed a break. So I took about a, yeah, a little over a year off and just, and slept and, you know, tried to actually live life, you know, live life a little <laughs> bit. Seth and I, start you know we had started another business together so we just we talked and i i pretty quickly realized that i that i was not done being uh, a criminal defense lawyer um, that i just needed a little time you know a little time to recharge and you know not get a migraine every day <laughs> uh, you know it, it was it was nice to have that right uh, and also just to figure out okay how can i do this for another 25 years without destroying my body um, and becoming, you know, an emotional, you know, just t- t- having this huge emotional toll on me. Uh, and that took a little time to figure out. And part of it is just experience. Part of it is being, being a little bit older um, and just kind of figuring out a better way emotionally to do things. I mean, I think that's the big issue when you're a public defender. If you're doing it right, it's supposed to hurt. Right. I was on the hiring committee when I was a public defender. And we used to ask, the, the applicants used to ask questions at the end of the interview. Uh, and one of them said, well, what, what quality do you think you need to be a public defender? And I said, you really have to enjoy getting hit in the face repeatedly 
and getting your nose broken every day. Like over, that has to become enjoyable over, for you, right? And and so part of the issue is when you, if you want to do this, if you want to be a criminal defense lawyer um, as a career, when I mean, you're talking over, you know, 35, 40 years, you have to be able to compartmentalize that to a certain extent. As a public defender, when I was in my you know mid twenties, I was a public defender until so I was thirty-two. I knew, and frankly, didn't care that it was taking a physical toll and an emotional toll. Like it just didn't matter to me because I was in my twenties, you know, and that was fine. I, I if it wasn't if I wasn't a public defender, I'm sure I would have found another way in my twenties to have something take a physical toll. Right? right, right. That's what you do when you're in your twenties. It's fine. Right. But as a as a sustainable career and way to live and you know be you know now i'm married with two kids you can't live that way no but you can what i have found is as i've gotten older and more mature and more experienced is you can still you know be very 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 good at what you do you can you know you could be an excellent lawyer and have those boundaries that allow you to frankly i think i'm better now one because i have more experience and two because I have a little bit more separation and part of the reason because I'm older um, and maybe a little more mature, but I have a little more separation. So it enables me to take a half a step back so I can have, have empathy, but I am not so connected in the sense that there's no, there's no boundary between my client and myself. Right. And when I was a public defender, I didn't want that boundary and that's fine. But what I found at least from, for me is that, I wouldn't have been able to do the job longer than I did it, you know, maybe for seven, eight years that way. It just wouldn't work. Whereas now I feel like I have a much better balance and I can have great relationships with my clients without taking on as my own their emotions, which I think is actually counterproductive to being an advisor and being a lawyer. I agree. I think because I've seen some great lawyers who are zealous advocates not be able to find that fine line and when they cross over into the emotional part of it, that it, it blurs one, their decision-making, their ability to uh, properly negotiate, help, like you said, advise the client in certain cases. You know, I've, I've, I've just seen uh, lawyers push certain people in different directions than they probably would have otherwise not had they not blurred that line uh, too far. Yeah. I mean, I think also it's part of it is now that, you know, when you're talking about doing jury trials, um, and I've had discussions with other people who have the similar experience as me, you know, at a certain point, you'll run in, I've run into you know, prosecutors who are either at the start of their career or they haven't had as much experience. And it's just, for me, it's much easier to advise clients now because, you know, I can, you know, I've got over, I don't know, probably over 60 jury trials that I can fall back on. And I don't know how many cases that I've worked on and advised people on and, and you know, analyze, et cetera. So there's no, there's very few things that I haven't seen. So it's a lot easier for me to go back and think, okay, how am I going to handle this? Right. I'm trying not to be overconfident. In fact, I feel like, <laughs> like I, tr well, I, I mean, again, I, I, I it, it enables me to see down the road. So I can say to someone, look, I can see about five steps down the road where this is going. And you may not believe me right now, um, but I see where this is going. I see the big train coming down the track. 
Now, if it gets too close, I'm going to tell you. Right now, it's a little bit in the distance. Right. But I've seen the train before. And, and I'm also able to identify, okay, here are the possible trains that are coming. You know, and it's just a lot easier. And because I've had the experience, I'm, I'm emotionally, I'm able to have a little bit more of a compartmentalization. And that way, I can be empathetic. I can be extremely involved. But I can also say, look, I've seen this before. Right. We your your advice is better. I mean, you just right. and we need to, to be, properly we need to, we need to handle this calmly. I know you're excited. I'm not as excited because I've seen it. And it's not going to serve you for me to be, to share your emotions about it because I'm the one that's got to go in there and destroy the prosecutor's case. So I'm going to do that in a calm, very, frankly, very nice and friendly way. I'm going to go in and be the friendly, friendly executioner right. of, of, the, of the prosecutor's case. You know, that's fine. I mean, I'm very nice. Uh, you know, I try to be as nice and as friendly as possible when I'm dealing with everybody. One, because it's a very, these are very stressful situations. Of course. So there's no need to make it more stressful by having animosity personally. And two, no one likes, if I'm, if I'm clearly beating up on someone, I want to do it nicely because I don't want it to, you know, I don't want anyone to, anyone on a jury to not like me. And I think that's a, a, I'm glad you brought that up when we're talking about trial advocacy. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's a common misconception uh, that, you know, they want the biggest bulldog in the courtroom to come in and, you know, bull in a China shop and just start wrecking everybody. Uh, I think it's a, it's easy for a, a young lawyer to think that that's the best way to come at a trial. And then you quickly learn that a jury will turn on you fast when you beat up on the easy witness. Yeah, I think, and also your barometer and my barometer of what is appropriate an appropriate time to go after someone in a nasty way, there's almost never a right time to do that in right. a courtroom, I think. One, because you can accomplish it, you can accomplish your goal in a way that doesn't require that. And two, you know, you're the one with the experience in the courtroom. That's going to show. You know, you're not nervous in the courtroom. Juries, juries can pick up on that. When they see that you're calmly, you know, if you're being nasty about it and it's clear you know what you're doing, you know, that just looks, that just looks vindictive right. to cruel. many people. You're cruel. Whereas, whereas I can, you know, I, and, and, you know, whereas I can get where I need to go in a very nice and friendly way, in a way that doesn't alienate the jury and sometimes doesn't even alienate the witness. Um, and that energy, I mean, a lot of what I, as I've gotten more experience, I, I, I'm in much more attuned to the energy in the courtroom because I think juries pick up on that. And, you know, and I, 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 I think about it akin to a song. Like there are songs that I like and I don't know the words. Right. You know, right. You don't know the words to the song. You may never know the words to the song, but you know if you like it or not. Juries, when they hear something, hear testimony in court, they're only going to hear it once. They're not going to hear it again. You've heard this stuff many times. You've read transcripts, etc. You know your case. The jury's going to hear it once. When they hear it, it's a song, and either they're going to like it or not like it. Right. And that's not necessarily based on the words that are spoken. It's all. It's all. It's some of it, and some of it's just the energy. And they're so not going to remember all of it positive either. Positive energy on your side, in order to make it work. That's right. Yeah. When I was at the National Criminal Defense College, that was uh, we were doing the mock cross, and I was young uh, public defender. You got to calm down. You need to be even flow, you know, as far right. as the pace. And it's so easy as a young, young lawyer to come in there and feel like you got to beat up on everybody. And that's just 
it's it's counterintuitive, but uh, it, it's it's actually the best uh, best advice. One of the things we could give to young lawyers, I guess. Now that we talk about that, what's some of the advice you would give to to young lawyers that are out there who are listening to the podcast? Uh, you know, you've had a, a, a like you said, you've dealt with just about every issue. You've had the crucible of trial and and kind of every type of, of criminal offense out there. So, what's some of the advice you'd give to young lawyers that are listening? I think that even now. I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years or almost 25 years. I am so hyper prepared and that never goes away. I mean, for example, I still write out my questions for cross-examination. Now I write them out, not because I'm going to read them. I write them out because it gets in my brain. And then when I go to cross-examine someone, I can, I can get into my time, you know, I have my topics I have my chapters of, of areas that I want to get into. I'll get into those areas. I may not look at my, my questions for an hour. And then I'll go back and I'll like, oh, okay, let me see where I'm at. Where, let me see where I am. And I'll check off all the topics I've hit. And I'll realize, oh, I didn't hit this topic. And I'll go back and do that. Also, it frees me up to listen to what the witness is saying. And I think that that is one of the main things that I would say to young lawyers, which is, you have to listen. You have to, you can't just go into a courtroom and expect it to be some of this, this sort of a formula. You're missing, if you do that, you're, gonna, you're missing 50% of what's going on. And that's what makes it so interesting because you, the reason we have trials, sort of the reason, you, the reason they play games in the NFL, right? You can have the odds, the odds, you know, but once you start playing the game, it doesn't really matter. That's why they play them. And that's why when you're in a trial and you have, human beings up there testifying there's there's no given outcome except in rare occasions you know you have you know you've got dna and fingerprints and and, and recorded phone calls etc like that, that different story but if there's, i've been there of course you know, everybody's been there <laughs> right but if you're in a trial with contested issues you know you got to be listening to what's happening the other thing i would say is you've got to immerse yourself as a young lawyer it took me three i'd say about three years before i could walk into a courtroom and be in a contested hearing and listen to the witness testify listen to uh be ready to object listen understand what the prosecutor's theory was take a question from my client mid-testimony who starts whispering in my ear (laughs) and be ready and and as the testimony is coming and there's something instinctively i don't like i up and object it without even thinking about it. That took about three years to take all that stimulus and have it flow into my head and me be able to make decisions in microseconds. But that's three years of immersion. That's three years of 18 hour days before I got that ability. Before the light bulb finally went off. Right, I mean, it was gradual. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't I mean, I was getting better and better sure. at it. But the way you do it is by preparation and immersion. You can't do this part-time. My, no. my feeling is, cannot do it part-time. And I say to a lot of young lawyers when they're coming out and they say, well, I want to be a criminal defense lawyer. I'll say, okay, here are the places that you should go and be a public defender because you'll immerse yourself in it. You'll be doing great work. You'll learn. And then if you want to come out and work privately, that's great. Or you want right. to stay and be a public defender, that's great. But don't, don't think that you can, it's almost like if you want to be a surgeon without being a resident. Right, it's just, there's it no way work. at all. No. You can't walk in and ever be, I mean, it's impossible. 
to do it that way. I, I found, I just don't think, I it think you have to have a way to immerse yourself. And it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, how naturally no. gifted you are. This just, it doesn't, it just, there's no other way. No. And, and, and when we talk about natural gifts, I mean, there are certain people who have presence, you know, nat, sort of natural presence or great voice or, you know, sort of the ability to perform on their feet. But I, my opinion is, you know, after doing this, that a lot of that can be learned and you may not have there. I've seen great lawyers who of all shapes and sizes and registers with their voice, um, you know, little guys, you know, little women, you know, tall women, you know, men, it doesn't matter, man or woman. And people who, you know, I've seen great lawyers who don't have that presence, but they have different skill sets that, that make them equally as, as, as effective. But you have to know what you've got. And you also have to, I mean, to me, that's why preparation and experience um, are what make you into a great lawyer. You're not, you might be born with some skills, but you're not going to get there. And, you know, sometimes clients will expect that, and this goes back to your point before, like they're expecting sort of fire and brimstone. Right. You know, there are some lawyers will give you fire and brimstone. That's great. But if it's fire and brimstone without anything behind it, it doesn't really matter. And I'll, I'll tell clients, look, I can get up and yell and scream with the best of them, but unless I'm yelling and screaming about something, what am I doing? You right. tell me, and then we'll go through the actual issues in a case um, and figure out what I'm going to be yelling and screaming about or what I'm going to be dealing calmly about, depending on the, the, the situation. And that's what comes again. It comes back to preparation. And, and I think there's a level of, you know, sincerity. There's a, a public defender who I know and she, you know, small in stature, low in tone, but she wins every big felony jury trial, but she never gets overexcited. She is more prepared than any other lawyer that steps foot in that courtroom and she wins every time. And I think it's because of the sincerity, the genuineness she has in that courtroom and the jury, when they hear from her, they know she is not BSing anyone that she is fully prepared and stuff that's coming out of her mouth, they want to listen to. And it's no fancy lawyer, uh, you know, the old school of saying the Johnny Cochran style. There's no antics. She has her notepad and she walks through it and she never loses. It doesn't matter the big case. I mean, it's insane that I try to tell people it's not about, there's plenty of great lawyers who have, like you said, the inflection, the tone, you know, what people would think from watching television. But one of the best lawyers that I know who, like I said, she's never lost a big felony jury trial. It's, I mean, and she's in double digits of uh, the cases and she, the trial advocacy part of it is through her preparation and sincerity. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and knowing what you've got and how to use it. I, mean, exactly. I think that's, that's the key. I mean, for me, you know, what I have found is the more prepared I am and the more focused I am on what my theory is. In other words, you know, you can't, in my mind, like just as a very basic example, in, in, a, in a homicide case, you're either usually, you know, let's, let's choose between these two, self-defense versus misidentification, not me versus I did it, but the guy the some, kill the some other dude did it. Defense. Exactly. Exactly. If you don't know what your theory is, that's what are problem. you yelling and what are you yelling and screaming about? Right. What questions are you asking? Because you're going to ask complete diametrically opposed questions to witnesses, depending on what your theory is. And 
you've got to know what that is and you've got to be prepared and you have to have your case investigated. That's going to take you a long way in cases. And when I first started, when I first started doing solo jury trials, I was relying on the preparation. You know, there's things now that I can do a little bit more on the fly and I do them better on the fly because I've just had the experience. But it doesn't mean I wouldn't write, you know, that's only because I have to do them on the fly. If I could be more prepared, I always want to be more prepared. Of course. You know, but, you know, but, but that's how I got through those early trials and how I got the experience was by hyper preparing. And I found that it worked for me. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the idea that you can, and I wouldn't say it's shortcuts, but the idea that the performance, the, right. the performance can mask the, um, the um the 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 mask the lack of prepara- a lack of preparation or mask the flaws in a case right the consistent not theme work. right not going to work particularly in serious felony cases the jury's not going to the jury's not no. going to buy it it doesn't matter what no. you know magic trick they're you know they're going to walk up there and try to pull it's just the credibility is gone right and also you know you can't and what i have found is that your personality you know being genuine can take you to a certain place but that is not, I, I've never had a jury say to, juror say to me, well, we thought you should have lost, but we really like you. <laughs> so I've had the opposite, which is, look, we thought you did a great job, but look, your case wasn't there. Right? That's, that, that, I've, I've had that happen far more often than. That's more than, often, right? Yeah. I mean, no one's ever said, well, we're, we're, we, cut your guy, we cut your guy loose because we like you. And I think it's more the opposite. I think they can convict your client if they don't like you more likely than That's not true. it's kind sure. of the i think you can have the opposite where your right. uh you know attitude in the courtroom can put the jury off in such a way that they don't listen to your theme right that you, that you i mean built. also a lot of right and when you have a bad case also they may not like you because of your case sure the facts the facts may be terrible and i've had i had that when i was a public defender i've had that you know even after that and, and that you have to live with. So you may be the, the, the least liked person in the courtroom anyway, because you're representing someone in a case where the facts are terrible. You know, that, that just comes with the job. Right. right. You have to use the trial to try to build that trust between them sure. throughout, throughout the trial. Right. So, exactly. So with that, I guess, what mistakes would you, would you tell them to avoid? Not just advice, but what are some pitfalls? What are mistakes you made, lessons learned? If you had to go back and say, you know, the 20 years ago and find uh, young Dave, the public defender, and say, hey, don't make these mistakes. I think for me, trap I fell into was thinking that if I won a case, that meant I was a good lawyer. Uh, and if I lost, and if I lost the case, that meant not only was I a bad lawyer, but I was a bad person. And that's because I was 26 years old. <laughs> uh, that that's just, and I was super, in, and 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 I'm, I'm I'm still super intense. But that was because I didn't understand that that is one not a way to. You can't have a career. Intense highs, based. intense lows. I mean, you just right, go you're going to have intense highs and right. You're going to have intense highs and intense lows anyway, but you can't base your self-worth on your one loss record um, because particularly as a public defender, oh, God. No. that will not serve you well. No, and no. also just going through life, it will not serve you well. You in any, in anything, in anything. No, 
Right. To me, what I found was you have to rely, you have to look at your preparation and you also have to look at your performance. I mean, I have, I've won cases. I look, I've won cases that I frankly probably should have lost. Right. And I've lost cases that I, I mean, probably fewer, but I've lost cases that I should have won. Um, and you know, that's going to happen. But what I feel, what I, what I've realized is, and what I've done, I think a lot better as I've gotten older is done a much more critical uh, self-analysis of my performance and said, okay, what can I do better? Right. How can I prepare this better? Did I handle this issue the best way possible? Or is there, could I should have done this differently or that differently? What could I do differently? Not, oh, you lost, therefore you're terrible or you won and therefore you're great. And, you know, and, and frankly, you know, because of, I think maybe it's my personality or just criminal defense lawyers personalities. You never really, you know, I never really remember the ones I won. I just remember the ones I lost. The beatings. Those are the yeah, ones that stay. Right. And that's also to me what gets me up in the morning. I mean, you know, there's when I'm at two in the morning, when I'm working on a case, it's like, cause I don't want to be the guy who loses. And if I lose, I don't want because it be, because, because of, I'm not prepared. I'm always want to be the hardest working person there. And, but again, if you let it determine your worth as a person, you're in trouble. So that's one thing I would say. And, and look, these are emotionally charged situations that most people, when you become a lawyer, you're not prepared for. Yeah, they don't teach that in law school. No, they can't. I mean, it's impossible. it'd be great if they could. Right. But, you know, to, to put yourself in that situation where you're walking into a jail to talk to someone and, and you feel like their liberty depends on you and what you do right. and what you say, that is an awesome responsibility. And I love it. I still love it. And I still feel honored to do it. But I feel like I do it better now. And I feel I do it from a more emotionally stable platform. That's what I would encourage people to do. I think it's hard when you're young to do it and inexperienced. But that's, I think that, that's probably the biggest cautionary tale that I would, I would relate. Yeah, I've always said that, you know, the timing of what I'm about to say sounds terrible, but I've always said that criminal defense, if you're around the right people, the right mentors, it's infectious in the sense that mm -hmm. once the, once you got bit by the bug, it, timing's bad to say that, but yeah. it's once you get bit, like you can't stop, you know, and I've heard, right. I've heard another uh, lawyer that I, that I just uh, love. He says, it's like witnessing a car crash and you know, you have to go in and help. You have to be a first responder, so to speak. Like you just can't turn your back to it. And then right. once you're involved, it's just, you're, it, there's no other option. doesn't matter. Exactly. You know, I think it, attra it attracts and keeps a certain personality type uh, involved. You know, like the people at our firm, like when we get together, the criminal defense people get together, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's, you know, you know what you're going to talk about. This, the sense of humor is pretty similar. Um, you dark. know, everyone's pretty <laughs> right. Right, dark. Everyone's pretty intense. Right. You know? and, and and I like that. I mean, you, it, it's, it's fun. It's, it's, oh yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely um, not for everybody. Not for everybody, <laughs> but I I feel like I've had such a great experience with it. Like I feel so lucky because there's so many people that I went to law school with who you know they don't practice law anymore. Or they're and miserable. I, just completely or right, miserable. Or totally miserable. And I, you know, I worked at a big firm for a summer in, in between my second and third year. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I did, I needed the money. So I did it. <laughs> um, of course. And I had no illusions about it, but even having no illusions about it, I was astounded at the level of misery. There was not one happy person there. I mean, the, the equity partners hated it. And I was like, I mean, these guys, these, these were the guys making millions of dollars a year. They're like, don't come here. <laughs> right. And I was like, okay, well, right. if you're, you know, if you're holding a dinner at your house and you're telling me not to come here, 
you know, that's a pretty strong message. And, you know, and I have never, I mean, I've been exhausted and mentally stressed, but I've never been unhappy doing this job. It's always been a pleasure and an honor to do it. Um, and so, I mean, I, I feel extremely lucky. So I guess before we kind of start to get towards the last little bit of our, our interview here, I know you've had some notable cases. You've had an innocence project case, and then you've had one recently, a post-conviction case that you've had for many, many years. And ultimately, this newly discovered evidence, this after-discovered evidence is found and uh, able to be a part of one full exoneration and the other one, the nature of the beast uh, through an offered plea. Uh, if you want to, if you could tell everybody about those, because I know those are two cases that had their own publicity, their own, their own uh, worth. And those are the cases that we live for. Sure. I mean, well, I, I, I began working with the Innocence Project. This is about eight years ago. And we were working on this one case, which uh, for those who knows about, know about the Innocence Project, they do a lot of DNA cases. You know, a lot of cases where D, they, they, get, they find evidence that hadn't been tested or been tested incorrectly and they get it retested and that uh, helps to exonerate people. Um, there have been some very famous Innocence Project cases with, with, that involve exonerations. This case was offered to me because, the, you know, they said, the, the people offered to me said, look, you have a lot of experience. You'd be great for this case, but there's no DNA. This is, we got to go out and we think this guy's innocent, but we got to go out and figure out how we're, we got to be creative with this. And that was, it was very interesting. And, and our client was such a lovely guy and is such a lovely guy. Um, uh, you know, we, we, I mean, it took us about six years to get it to the point where we were able to get the prosecutors in the post-conviction unit um, in uh, Baltimore City to reinvestigate it. They opened a grand jury investigation and then they found, they took what we found and they expanded upon that and they found about 20 other witnesses who were able to show that our guy didn't, it was a murder case, didn't do it. He was serving life without parole. So he got out, he got out, um, now it's two and a half years ago and he's doing great. So, well, you know, I got to spend like over an hour with him stuck in a yeah, ride know, chair. Exactly. And so we, yeah. we got, we got to uh, know each other. We were stuck in traffic in a ride chair for like yeah. over an hour and a half sitting right yeah. beside him. So it was just an amazing experience to yeah. kind of, you know, he asked me a lot because I was fortunate in, as a young lawyer coming out and having my own type of exoneration case. Uh, through after discovered evidence, so he and I talked about that for the whole hour and a half, and it was just a absolute pleasure. Oh, it's great! It's great. And 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 now with our more recent case, this is a case I've worked on for half my career, um, and it's just so interesting because we had about you really can divide it up into about four lines of attack. Plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. Plan C didn't work. Plan D, we hit the jackpot. And it was just in, incredible about how it ha, you know, how that worked out. And as it turns out, it was finally disclosed that sitting in the, the uh, detective's homicide case jacket uh, was a note that had not been disclosed for 23 and a half years uh, that named very specifically a second suspect, you know, with name, date of birth, social security number, et cetera. Never been investigated, never disclosed we were able to use that, you know, we, we were in the middle of some post-conviction hearings um, and this added, a, you know, a, a lot of energy to that. We filed emergency motions and that led us down this whole new path. We had a whole other set of hearings on it and we were finally able to resolve this with the government where we uh, did a resentencing 
because our client had been found guilty at trial. So he never had pled guilty. Um, so he, we did a resentencing to essentially time served. Oh, okay. okay. I thought y'all so he walked, so he walked out the door and he's on, he's on uh, two years of probation, but we expect that he'll be getting his associate's degree uh, this summer, depending on what happens with his course load because of the virus. But hopefully in the next few months, he'll have his associate's degree and then move on to his bachelor's degree. And during that time, we expect his probation will be terminated successfully. Nice. So he's doing great. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's fabulous. It's really fabulous. Yeah, there's no greater feeling. You know, the, no. either you get in those, the, those two sweet words of not guilty or yeah. obviously the exoneration is a whole nother. Yeah. Uh, absolutely a whole nother uh, aspect yeah. all right so we got this part towards the end of our we have two things we like to wrap up with one sure. called the cross-examination and then we'll get into war stories to close so for cross-examination i got uh five real quick right off the bat questions okay. just, we, so what's your favorite law related movie presumed innocent ah good one how about favorite law related book oh what's that book um there's a, oh, I can't remember the name. It's a Jerry Spence book that I really like. Um, and also, you know, actually I like, I like, you know, I really like is the uh, J- uh, Jeffrey Tubin book, uh, the OJ Simpson run, run of his life. That's I've a very heard, good book. I've heard it's great. Are we talking about nonfiction? If we're talking it doesn't, nonfiction. It doesn't matter. Either oh, way. if we're talking fiction. Oh, I mean, there's any George Pelicanos book. <laughs> uh, there's the Dennis Lehane books. There's the Michael Connolly books, which I really like, the Lincoln Lawyer books. Those are really good. So, I mean, I read a couple of books a week anyway, so I've got a whole host of fiction books that I'll read. Nice. Fictional series. Which lawyer in history would you want to meet if you could? If you could make that table sit down happen, which lawyer in history would you want to meet? Mm. And why? Which lawyer would I want to meet? There's so many good ones. I know. I would say, I'll give you two. John Adams, because he defended the Hessians. I think it was Bunker Hill. I think it was at Bunker Hill or the, yeah, I think at Bunker Hill he defended them. I don't want to be, I don't want to go wrong, but I do know he defended them. I don't want to He defended the Hessians and and ran around the Revolutionary War. And then um, I think um, Edward Bennett Williams. Nice. Yeah. Just because he was so connected. <laughs> that, yeah, the John Adams, it'd be, it'd be amazing. Right. right. So list one thing that has made you a better lawyer. Just right off the top of your head. What's one thing that you do that's made you a better lawyer? I mean, one pra- like one practice? Yeah. What's, what's one thing you do? Uh, it doesn't have to be daily, weekly. Just one thing you do. You know, some people, you know, exercise is their thing. I know that, that's a new big thing of yours uh, is really exercising. Uh, yeah, I mean, it could be anything. Or it could be reading a book. You read books every week. I think I do, I do a fair amount of martial arts and that has calmed me down, like really calmed me down so, in a way that it makes me, I, I can, it's, it's, it's enabled me to assess more when things are coming at me. I'm a little, I'm like a, a hair calmer and it's because I usually get this adrenaline rush like most people do and I still get it but I'm able to manage it a little bit better. And I find that I can look at that and say, oh, okay, I should go forward here or I should I take a step back and then go forward. Uh, so it, it gives me, it's given me an extra second to evaluate things, which I find interesting. Nice. So last, what would you do if you were not a lawyer? What job, you know, what's your dream job? Minus being a lawyer. What, what would be the other thing? 
there's a couple. Uh, I would say originally, but they don't really have the league anymore. Pro beach volleyball player, <laughs> but I'd have to be six six. Right. I'm not six six. Um, it's not really a long career. I wouldn't mind being an MMA fighter. That's similar to being a public defender, but let's say MMA fighter. Um, yeah. Um, or I'd like to be the guy who manages the salary cap for an NFL team. Interesting. That's a good That's one. That's why I like to be a capologist. Yeah, I'd, I'd like that. That's a good one. All right. Yeah. So to end the show, war story. It can be okay. most memorable, uh, funny, comedic, you know, however, you, your, your choice. War story, uh, the floor is yours. Okay. So I had, I had a case where my client was accused uh, this is the different than the one I told you yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I had a case where my client was accused of robbing his own father at gunpoint. This was back in the nineties, you know, a lot of, you know, in DC, the crack, you know, his crack was so prominent and there was a lot, you know, a lot of stuff going around, going on. And our defensive trial was misidentification and we won. <laughs> Oh, the I got the case. Dis- I got the case dismissed after openings. So what happened was, I went out to investigate the case, and we went out to talk to the father. He was, you know, late sixties, early seventies. You know, walking around, and I said to him, you know, just I had a hunch. We're talking about. He gave me. He said, "Look, you know, my, my son came up behind me, and he pointed a gun at me, and I knew it was him, etc." I said, "Okay." I said, "Fine." Can, can, would you mind, like, no offense, could we do a little eye test? Just a little eye test. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm maybe, I'm less than three feet away from, like, normal conversational distance, you know, a couple of feet. Brightly lit hallway. I put my hand, I put my finger, I said, how many fingers do I have up? He goes, four. You did the My Cousin Vinny? You actually had the My Cousin Vinny defense? He and had it four, he had double cataracts. Oh, my God. On, and that had not been operated on. Double cataracts. Then the whole case unraveled from there. It turns out that this guy had been living with, he was, let's say, 70. He was living with a 20-year-old crackhead woman who hated the son because the son did not want her there because he was, she was a crackhead and was stealing the guy's money. She put him up to saying that he robbed her to get oh. him out of the picture. So, we had, so he recanted to me. So I had the double cataracts and the recantation. The prosecutor comes in. This is my this was my first solo jury trial. This one got dismissed right after openings. So prosecutor comes in before the trial. He had just gotten back from vacation. He was all tan from he had been in the islands. And I was sitting, I, you know, I was, you talk about preparation. Like I had this thing locked. Right. Um, and he said, Look, I really like you. You're nice, you're a nice kid. I'm not gonna hurt you too bad in this trial. Real I'm patronizing. About- <laughs> yeah, he's like, I know, but not even, no, he was really nice. He's actually oh, okay. being nice. Yeah, okay. but, but he's like, I've done a hundred jury trials and this is it's like my hundredth or hundred and first, but don't worry. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. It'd be and I'm smooth. Like, I sure. said, great. Okay. So he gets up, he does his opening. He goes, listen, Mr. Benowitz is a really, he's a nice lawyer. This is in his opening. He's in his, he's a nice lawyer. You know, it's not about him. It's his case. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I get up and I said, well, this guy had cataracts and can't see anything and he recanted and I have the statement right here and I pull out a blow up of the statement saying where he said he didn't do it <laughs> and it was all a lie. 
So we start after openings, the prosecutor comes and goes, is that true? I said, yeah. He goes, all right, give me two minutes. And he walks out, he comes back. He's like, I'm dismissing. So that was my. <laughs> that's an epic first real. case. A first yeah, jury a trial. Case. Yeah, it was great. It was that's great. A, that's perfect. That was a memorable one. Yes. Well, you can't, I mean, you can't beat it. Not only is it your first jury trial, which is barely a trial. I mean, outside exactly. of the, outside of the opening. Exactly. I guess that yep. goes right back to what you said earlier about rolling back your sleeves, doing your own independent investigation, going to oh, the yeah. scene and interviewing witnesses. I mean, that was, oh, and that I, was and the perfect I, antidote. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing where, you know, we were always taught you prep. If you have a defense witness, you prepare them three times, three sessions. And we had one guy who I was literally asking three questions to, and I was dragging lawyers out with me. I was like, we got to go out and prepare them. And they're like, okay, we go out there. I've asked them three questions. They're like, you dragged me out 45 minutes to, for three questions. I was like, <laughs> You're doing it that's three it. times, but yeah, that's, that's the thing. You know, you gotta be overprepared. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for being on our first episode. Hopefully that's everything. Great. Thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. We'll hopefully yeah. get it out soon, get everything up and running. You know, the Excellent. big thing is, you know, just again, thank you. We'll start getting everybody in line and start knocking out all these interviews. Uh, but I think this is a outstanding first episode. So thank you. No, great. This is awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for anyone who's listening, watching. We'll put this on YouTube. You know, we'll have all our social media set up here soon. So make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all that other uh, nice stuff. Again, you know, it, lawyers and disclaimers, right? The, so none of this is legal advice. This is just general information that's been provided here. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not your lawyer. But if you have a case, call us. We'll be happy to sit down and talk to you. you know, so we got our legal disclaimers out of the way, but uh, thanks everybody so much and uh, everybody take care. Check us out next time. <laughs>